0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The pandemic pushed virtually the entire federal workforce to remote work in a matter of a few days. The federal chief information officer at the time suzette kent convened daily meetings of the cio council so everyone could learn from everyone else what worked and what didn't about a month into the pandemic i asked her what the cios across government had learned about moving the government workforce to remote work
1: we have learned quite a bit and i have to start with a thank you and um accommodation to all of the members of the i.t community and that includes our, our vendor partners and the support groups that are around You know, IT. What, what we were challenged with was as we moved to this maximum telework situation and focused on two things, response and continuity of operations. It was a different type of challenge. And the thing that has been very positive across the agencies is that they responded well uh, as you mentioned, we meet as a group and collaborate, you know, share both learnings. We're um, operating at a speed that is much faster than standard, uh, what you would normally see, as well as uh, have scaled, you know, operations. And the very exciting thing is the investments that we have made in modernization, cloud solutions, scalable commercial platforms and the collaboration tools that many agencies have are the reason that we're able to respond quickly to this unique challenge um, and act on some of the recovery things as well as continue operations
0: in among the issues that uh agencies have had successes or challenges that they've had in responding to this maximum telework? Are there common threads? Or is each agency facing its own successes and challenges because of the position it happens to be in its posture before coronavirus happened?
1: Yeah. Great question, Francis, and a little bit of both. Um, When agencies plan for telework in a traditional environment, the, there was a, a finite set of individuals and activities that were eligible for telework. In this situation, that changed. So that was a change to what the um, superset of, of the audience for telework looked like. We also learned with some agencies, we, we asked questions about things that we could and areas where we could reduce person-to-person contact, and so we changed our operating model. And so moving to those things presented also a different type of environment and places where agencies had to make changes. And those were some of the areas where they shared um, ideas, tips, and, and ability to move quickly with each other. A great example is how VA and SSA pivoted from in-person activities to things that they did through phone interviews. So. Um, very in a in a great way many agencies were ready but across the board this is a uh, has presented a challenge that is a higher and much longer sustained telework environment than has ever been used before.
0: You mentioned a moment ago Suzette that some of the modernization investments you've already made the government's already made are paying off here. What are some examples of that and what are some examples of places where you've seen maybe because you didn't get a chance to implement the modernization initiatives you have wanted to in a particular place or because they haven't been funded yet or whatever. Where are some of the places where you see chances to drive that whether it's during the virus uh, situation or afterward. Yeah.
1: Francis that's a great question and it's something that the CIO group is robustly debating right now. So the the investments that paid off, cloud email, um, scalable solutions that we could move from an average expected volume to this unexpected volume. Investments in collaboration tools. It's been very exciting for me to hear teams say that they're using collaboration tools for meetings and they're doing things like screen sharing when they've never done that before. We also you know and I, that's the, those examples are about operations inside government. One of the most important things um, important areas of investment is ways that we deliver digital services to citizens and that's the areas where we have recognized that we have much more opportunity. Those things were still on the list for many agencies to continue their modernization efforts and their development. So this has actually challenged us to move faster on some of those capabilities so that we can continue continuity of operations and services for citizens, but do it in a way that doesn't require person to person contact.
0: We have about a minute left in this part of our conversation. Suzette, you've used the term move faster a number of times already in the time that we've been talking this morning. What does that look like and how are you, what are you able to do faster now that you couldn't before and how so? Is it just because of this forcing function, or are, are you able to get people to do things the, in ways they maybe couldn't or wouldn't before, or or what? Yeah,
1: um, Francis, it, it it is definitely about the people and the pace at which they are working. I, I think many who are watching your show should be uh, proud at the level of effort and urgency and intensity uh, that, that we're seeing across the federal government. We're, we're using our, our same processes. We're governed by uh, the same set of activities. But in some agencies, we're running shifts, you know, three shifts. Um, people are working, you know, 24 seven. They're all focused and on point uh, for the same set of activities. Um, and, and, and that is not different in our standard processes, but the level of urgency um, and the common focus on a very narrow set of objectives has been different. And there's not many situations where there's new guidance coming out almost every single day. Um, So those require very fast discussions and things that inside the federal government um, people were maybe used to a certain pace when that pace is not measured in days and months, it's measured in minutes and hours. Um, it's, It's a different type of challenge.
0: Coming next, a presidential executive order that echoes through the entire workforce straight ahead on government matters, a failing grade for Schedule F. Welcome back. A new workforce category President Trump created by executive order would make it easier for agencies to fire policymakers across government. The Office of Management and Budget says 88 percent of its employees could move to the new category. Two former federal chief human capital officers, Jeff Neal and Ron Sanders, explained why Schedule F would be bad for the federal workforce. First, though, Sanders explained why he resigned over the issue as chair of the Federal Salary Council.
2: This is a matter of personal um, conscience. Uh, the Federal Salary Council is an obscure body and its chair is an obscure position. It is a presidential appointment, but as, uh, as you indicated, I've resigned effective this morning because of the Schedule F executive order. Uh, in my humble opinion, it's a very sharp two-edged sword. On one hand, it purports to hold federal employees more accountable, a, a laudable subject if that were the case. But there are uh, a number of reasons to be suspect of it, and we can talk about that. The other very sharp edge of this sword is it gives agency heads a chance to appoint political appointees, literally a massive burrowing-in effort. And so I worry about both of those, especially given the timing of this executive order. And as a matter of conscience, I, I just um, couldn't be part of it
0: jeff neal welcome uh correspondent wrote to me this weekend that this should be called schedule fu. you titled uh blog post last week white house drops an f-bomb on the career civil service and you wrote this as well it's the most direct assault on the career civil service since the passage of the pendleton act in 1883 why so well francis it's because of exactly what
3: ron said it's purporting to be something that addresses the the problems with getting rid of poor performers. But the reality is that everything about it is done in a way that really is creating a new class of political appointees. And it could be tens of thousands or literally even hundreds of thousands when you look at the executive order and the the definition of policymaking or policy advocating positions. Policy advocating is... Is a loophole you could drive a fleet of Mac trucks through. So what it's doing is it's creating tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of political appointees. And I don't know anybody who's realistically looking at the federal workforce who says what we need is to increase the number of political appointees tenfold or twentyfold. It's just it's it's just so blatantly nakedly political that I, I think you've seen from people who have a lot of different opinions about the federal workforce, almost universal uh, disgust with this particular executive order. It's, it's just simply uh, undoing 137 years of merit-based civil service. And, and that's where I think it's, it's really uh, a devastating attack.
0: We'll talk about the response if we have time, but I note this passage and call your attention to it, gentlemen, in the guidance that Michael Regas put out on Friday. The executive order, he writes, directs each agency head to review positions within his or her agency and identify those positions appropriately categorized as confidential policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating, and then petition OPM to place those positions in Schedule F. Gentlemen, from your experience as Chico's, What if a Chico at an agency does nothing or responds, we didn't find any? Ron, you go first, please.
2: Well, I have to tell you, I I worry about that because that, in many respects, legitimizes the purpose of the executive order. You want a responsive career civil service. And um, if a career civil servant disagrees with the policy of a president, not just the president, any president, there are certain appropriate things that he or she can do but slow rolling it, going underground, again, to me, that just uh, makes the reason for the executive order um, appropriate. You want career civil servants to be able to speak truth to power. And let me make a point here, Francis. The, the executive order focuses on policy advising, policy making, policy advocating positions. Look, political appointees make policy. They make the decisions. Greer's civil servants are supposed to give them their best advice, but they always have the prerogative of ignoring that advice. And this executive order puts them all in one basket and says, we don't care what that advice is, it's your fault, not ours, for making that policy decision. And that troubles me a great deal.
0: Jeff, that's quite a conundrum that Ron describes. Do you see it the same way?
3: I I see it the same way to a degree, but when I look at this and look at how it was done with really very little work, very few people involved in actually writing this executive order. A lot of the background work that you would normally see done in a major policy that would affect tens of thousands of employees wasn't done. So the Chicos who are going to be asked to implement this have a lot of background work that needs to be done that really is going to take months. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do it by the, the January 19th deadline in the executive order. Uh, there, you know, Normally, when you do something like this, you would do enough prep work up front that you would have a good idea exactly how many employees are going to be affected. But nobody really knows that right now. So in a department the size of the Department of Homeland Security, for example, with almost 200,000 uh, career employees, you could easily have 10 or 20,000 people covered by this. And going through that number of job descriptions, looking at who they report to, what kind of work they do. And all of this type of thing that has to be done, you really can't do quickly. So I wouldn't call it slow rolling it. I would call it trying to actually implement it in a way that is legal, consistent with the executive order, and would stand up in court and that that you could actually explain when inevitably you get called to the
0: Hill to testify about it. Up next, more of the most important issues impacting the federal workforce straight ahead on Government Matters. More reflections on the biggest personnel stories of 2020. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. As 2020 comes to a close, we are looking at the biggest workforce stories of this year. Jesse Burr is associate editor of the Federal Times. Courtney Buble is staff correspondent for Government Executive. They've made their choices for the most important personnel stories of the year. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for coming on. Jesse, start with you. Your top choice is the assessment changes to federal hiring policy. Why did you choose that one? So
4: the assessment changes have a really strong potential to alter the demographics of the federal workforce. Uh, by placing an emphasis on people's training and skills that they may have acquired outside of traditional education, I think you're gonna get far more people uh, applying for federal jobs that are uh, not, uh, they don't have higher education degrees and uh, can kind of change the face of the federal workforce. And I think it also has the potential to make the uh, federal job posting Make a lot more sense and be a lot more manageable for people trying to apply.
0: What do we know about the way that agencies will change the way that they write those those job descriptions, if anything yet uh, in order to accommodate the way that they're assessing their the potential uh, employees?
4: So they're required that unless the job legally has a degree requirement, uh, the agencies must make sure that the job placement discuss the potential for assessments and let applicants know that they don't need to have a degree to satisfy requirements. Other than that, there's going to be some changes that will be individual to each agency. OPM is leaving a lot of the decisions up to how agencies want to structure their own assessments and what kinds of tools they want to use.
0: Are we getting any sense of a timeline of when agencies will or are already starting to make these changes, Jesse?
4: Currently, agencies are working on the process of developing the kinds of assessments they want to use, and uh, they are supposed to be implementing and starting to apply these to jobs within the next couple of months.
0: Courtney, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. Your choice for number one this year was uh, the uh, transition to telework and the way that agencies have made that transition. Why did that jump out at you as the most important thing to happen this year?
5: Well, the coronavirus pandemic, which has been raging throughout the country for almost a year now, has really, you know, dominated every aspect of our lives. And many agencies didn't have telework policies prior to the pandemic. Um, so the story that government executive did on March 9th um, about the The guidance from the Office of Personnel Management with the needed flexibilities that um, agencies could offer their workforce was very important. You know, there's over 2.1 million um, government employees, many of which weren't teleworking before the pandemic. Um, So, this offered them the flexibilities that they would want to take advantage of and you know many agencies have begun the process to bring employees back to into offices but now that we're in another wave of the pandemic who knows if they're going to revert back to more telework and if this could be um, a long-lasting policy after the pandemic is gone
0: what are some of the implications that you've been following if any of what the long-term telework prospect looks like courtney
5: well, it seems that many agencies have been just as productive, if not more, um, via telework. I know there's been um, some confusion and questions with various agencies about coronavirus guidance and telework overall, but it seems like the workforce um, really likes it. And um, even the Defense Department, which traditionally can't telework because of the need for classified rooms and skiffs, you know, they're finding ways to, to work around that and to kind of be a leader in um, the um, agencies expanding more telework.
0: How much of this success that people have been following around telework, Courtney, can be attributed to management techniques, do you think? And how much can be attributed to technology?
5: I would say it's about 50-50. I think you need to have good management in order to, um, you know, keep up morale with agencies and make sure people are actually doing what they need to do from home. You know, many people have kids or they have other responsibilities at home that could be a distraction, but also technology is a very important part of that because you literally can't work from home if you don't have a good connection or a good, you know, network setup. So I think you kind of need both in order to fully be
3: successful
0: jesse your second choice was how the pandemic might change the approach to federal telework what are you seeing as far as what telework looks like six months from now a year from now once people have an opportunity to get vaccines and could come back to the office if they chose to
4: so i think as courtney uh brought up the difference between federal agencies of some having telework programs prior to the pandemic and some not has really changed because every agency has been forced to implement some kind of telework uh, for at least some of its employees. And I think the big difference here is sort of like the proof in the pudding that telework can actually work and can be more productive and provide employees with more flexibility. It's also one of the tools that the Office of Personnel Management has consistently said can help recruit new talent. And so I think even once the vaccine comes out and federal employees are able to more safely work from home, I think agencies are going to have a much more open mind to allowing uh, employees to work part-time telework or even full-time telework to get access to people who might not physically be in the same area as the agency.
0: Courtney, that safely coming back to the office concept was your choice for number two. What are you watching there as agencies start to release their plans and as people start to come back to the office in greater numbers?
5: There's two things I'm really watching. Um, The House passed legislation the end of September that would um, institute certain requirements that agencies would have to do um, in bringing their workforces back into the office. Um, Senate Democrats also introduced their own version of the bill that day, and while it didn't Past many agencies have been doing this on their own, so I've been looking at the reopening plans and any issues that have been arising with that. Um, and another thing, it, in a related manner, is Representative um, Jerry Connelly of Virginia. He has been tracking what inspectors generals are doing to oversee agency reopening. So he has a tracker for the 24 IDs at the the major agencies and how they've been, you know, reviewing the plans. And so far. All except one are doing some type of review, and the one that isn't doing a review is the SBA, and they're a little busy right now overseeing the emergency lending and um, loan programs, but they said at some point they will get to that. So those are the the two main things that I'll be looking out for.
0: Courtney Buble and Jesse Burr, thank you both very much for coming on. It's great to have you.
5: Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune in to the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn.
0: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.